Today's podcast is brought to you by one of our awesome sponsors, New Belgium. One of their beers, Voodoo Ranger IPA, is a favorite here at the Creative Convergence. Voodoo Ranger IPA is perfectly balanced with notes of guava, mango, and pineapple with a delicately bitter finish. For beer news and occasional mediocre advice, follow at Voodoo Ranger on Twitter and Instagram, where you will hear about what's new and where you can find Voodoo Ranger near you. Voodoo Ranger IPA. Drink responsibly. Live rangerously. Welcome to the Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Creative Convergence podcast. Today we have part two with our exceptional guest, Ben Dickey. How did you wind down your time in Arizona? How did you start to go from here to Canada that you had saved up money? You were going to get yeah. a record. Uh, you know, basically, basically I was, I was going to, I was going to, I was going to bet on the band. I was going to bet on the band. So I told Drew, I was like, you know, uh, I had, I had, I had been to Nova Scotia visiting Ethan and his wife are for, we're all friends. And, um, you know, he was, he's a good friend and that he's like, how, How's the songwriting? What are you doing? Like, when's the next record? And I, I was telling him what was happening, and I was like, you know, I really, I want to come back to Philadelphia, and I want to, if we're gonna call today, I want to make one more record. Uh, and he said, dude, why don't you come to my place up here? I mean, if y'all, if y'all can bring some equipment up, you can, you know, it's rent free. It's super magical and wonderful and beautiful, and you can be here all summer. He was working in like South Africa or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like those big celebrities do. They're like, oh, yeah. come use my place. I'm going to be on set for, you know, four months in another continent. It's great. So I, you know, I reached out to my buddy Quentin Stoltzfus who had a band called Mazarin and now has a band called Light Heat, but he and I are good friends and he's a producer and he's got the gear and he's got the know-how. So I reached out to him and I said, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay you a lot of money. <laughs> How did that initially go over? I'm just curious. Well, I, I, here's a, I said, I got an offer for you. Yeah. Do you want to spend the summer rent-free in a house on an island in Nova Scotia? And I'm going to pay for our groceries. I'm going to pay for us to live, but we're going to make a record there. And, you, you know, it's so beautiful and idyllic. Cape Breton is there. I mean, it's, it's just outstandingly wonderful place to be and the people are wonderful. So I said, listen, for two and a half months, rent free. You can come. I'm going to bring amps and stuff. I'm going to bring my computer, my processor, all that stuff. I need you and what you do. I need a mic pre. <laughs> I need a good compressor. I need this and that, which I know you have. And without thinking about it, this rock and roll summer proposal was was a no brainer. Absolutely. And you know, all of us went up. We even found like weird little like weekend jobs every once in a while to make, you know, make groceries. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we, we did the drum and bass, uh, tracks that my friend Alec from the band clap your hands. say yeah, he just, he just got this great home studio and 
just had this brand new board and all this gear. So we we went, we recorded the bass and the drums in this really, really, really nice studio. So we had this drums and the bass done. And all we needed to do is take everything else to Canada. And we did some acoustic things that didn't have all that stuff on it. But every day was family breakfast because I cooked for everyone go for a swim, shuck some oysters out of the bay, and then by 1 p.m., start to get started working. And then we'd work until 2 in the morning and have adventures certain days. We took days off, you know, and today we're going to go do this. And it, it was just, you know, anyone that has a, been enamored with, like, the notion of, like, a big pink Dylan in the band situation where you're just immersed as a band and every day you can go and everything is set up. You can just start playing music together. Regardless of what was going to happen with the band and the record, and the record's great, but I just was like, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm looking for. And that environment of like community and music was like, this is fucking fantastic. And we all talk about it with the same fondness that you hear coming out of my mind. I can confidently <laughs> speak for musicians everywhere without even a bat of an eye of doubt Yeah, that every musician everywhere right now is going, that is everything I dream of. Like yeah, that's, that's everything we all dream of a community that's environment it. to live, breathe, make music, beautiful yeah. setting, good company, inspiration of, abroad uh, abound. Right. My version of a Lamborghini is just, a bunch of nice amplifiers, a great PA, a great drum set, a bunch of a B3. Everything's set up and a place and people to come play. That's that's if if and when I come <laughs> I'm right here with you. Like eyeballs is in sync. I couldn't agree yeah. more. That sounds like that sounds like heaven on this earth for sure. Absolutely. So you go and you live this incredible. I mean, I wouldn't want to leave. I'd be like, Ethan, can you extend your filming a little longer? <laughs> because we're we're doing just fine in this setup. Oh yeah. How did it wind down, and and where does one uh, go from such a beautiful it wind, circumstance? It wind down. It wind down with Barack Obama becoming president, which was cool. Um, everybody left like in the middle of August. The not one, one of the first nights that it was just me and Beth back in the house with, without Ben and everything was the night Sarah Palin came into the world. <laughs> <laughs> and it was because it was like I was like peeking back toward what America what it was going to be like to go home, you know. Yeah. And, uh, You're like, well, there's a shift. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we watched the Olympics. It was really, it was, it's so surreal. Uh, but by the time the the fall started, I was going to go back to Philadelphia and start mixing that record, find a place to live, and and like try to be um, try to be Michael Jordan about diligence and like we're going to make this work. We're going to make this work. I'll work however many hours I got to work, but we're going to make this record be great and we're going to tour it and like whatever happens, but we're going to do it right this time because the first record had come out and we couldn't really tour it. We couldn't we just didn't have the resources. And we, we had been told we were going to have a bunch of resources and it bottomed out. So I just went back to Philadelphia with this like Uber gumption to try to make it work. And I got double pneumonia. <laughs> And I had a partial lung collapse. Ben, you really, said like seven things today that I just don't see coming. And my, I feel yeah. bad for the people listening because all they hear is gasping on my end. Please continue. Well, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I watched the uh, Philadelphia Phillies uh, make it into the World Series from a hospital bed. 
And I was out by the night that they won the World Series, but I, uh, and by the night Obama became president, because that was all within a week each other. Yeah. So, uh, which was really uh, being a Philadelphia person, uh, because the, the Obama campaign had been in Philadelphia so much and he'd given these big, it was very exciting. Uh, but I think my body was like, hold on, hold on. Uh, because it took me a long time to get back to a place of like, uh, where I could work because I had had a collapsed lung. So I was, I was like head full of Dilaudid because I had <laughs> taken too much, you know, I was, I was having to take enough opiates that I had to have pre-counseling for an addict. That is, they were like, you're going to be undelotted for 90 days. You're going to get addicted. Here's how to get unaddicted, which wow. was really experience. It was really interesting because I did get addicted Yeah, uh, and it was hard. But what came out of it was like, I sort of like went through like an, uh, an iron gilding situation where I felt stronger coming out of it. But when I came out of it, I needed to work. And my good friend, Paul Kimport, who ran Johnny Brenda's and Standard Tap, which are these flagship cultural uh, anchors for musicians and artists and friends of mine. Uh, I had worked for him before, but he wanted me to come back in in a more serious capacity working in a kitchen, which I was trying not to do. Right. But he, I could, I could have steady work that I could rely on in my time down from being sick. had really fucked up my money situation. And uh, I loved him and what their place was all about. The same way I love Newt and what the Raven is all about. Um, I'm more attracted to, to being in the service industry when I can work at a place that has a cultural uh, significance in a community. Mm-hmm. And I ha- and that had that in spades. So all of a sudden I found myself trying to mix this record to get a band back together while turning and going back to a 60-hour work week um, with some malleable collar around my neck uh, because... He was my friend. My boss was my friend, and he was looking out for my better interests. So mixing uh, the record that we called Goodness Gracious that we made in the fantasy rock and roll summertime Canada party, <laughs> uh, we, you know, we made a record we were really happy with. And, and, but, but, but I found myself right back in the trap of, and now the record's ready. We, let's go on tour, and we can't afford it. Right. Or we, like, you know, I was ready to take out a loan. and. I was ready to go full throttle, but, you know. Well, you were you ready to gamble on yourself, and it's sometimes yeah, hard to yeah. convince others to have the same conviction. But, you know, we played shows. We supported the record as we could. We had the William Morris Agency came to us and, you know, was, wanted to represent us. But, again, we just couldn't hit the mark as far as, like, you know. When the William Morris Agency asks you to, like, come asks you for a time, you got to be, oh, this is good. And then what they want you to do might not be what you want to do, but we didn't do it. Um, and that was a heartbreaking thing for me. Uh, you know, I just, uh, it's difficult when you are the only one that really, like everybody was happy where we were at, I think. Right. And, 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 and that's fine. And that's fine. And I, I, um, I was probably an unpleasant teammate in regards to, we've got to, you know, we've got to like, Forgive me for interrupting, but I would say, you know, I'm sure there's a cliche in here somewhere that I'm not pulling out well, but being content is often a double-edged sword. You know, if you're in a band with people who feel like, hey, where we're at, we're doing pretty good. And, 
you know, it's enough and it doesn't put too much strain and you're not putting going out on a limb where what if we can't pay the money back or this or that. That contentness, is that even a word? I don't know, Ben. That contentness, <laughs> it is now. That level of being content can be um, safe, but what? sometimes it's a little bit rough for the folks that see the vision beyond. Yeah. I mean, I, expectations are dangerous, but when all my expectations was that we all wanted to be doing it. And I think, I think my, my want to do it was, was kind of poisoning the well for everybody else because I, w- I would get really agitated when we would like, you know, we went on tour with the Walkman and mm-hmm. uh, those guys are great. and They're, they're at a level we were hoping to be at. They offered us a whole tour, but it was not a lot of money. I said, I thought we should do you it. You go everybody, take the tour. Yeah, take a tour. I mean, we're playing in front of two to 5,000 people every night. Yeah. Uh, but we just couldn't do it. And I, I'm not coming down on anybody in particular in the band. It was just people had families and yeah. jobs. And it was like, so at that point, I was like, oh, right, this is another, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trapped here. And Blood Feathers went on to make one other record because we had the material. And I thought, you know, let's just do Get it. it out. And I, yeah. And I, and I probably, again, I think I was, a prickly pear during that period because we were just kind of, we just kind of went through the motions. We didn't really work on anything in my estimation. There's some wonderful moments on the record. It's a bitter uh, pill for me to swallow just because I was having a hard time with it. Uh, I just felt like we had a really handsome ship with four big masts and the sails were spread, but we were just choosing not to leave the bay. And it was very frustrating to me, but you know, I get quiet in my mind and recognize that's not the path. Uh, but we finished, we made one last record, and uh, then I moved to Louisiana. How did that decision come to be, specifically to Louisiana? Well, that's Newt Lynn again. Uh, <laughs> that tricky Newt Lynn guy. Yeah. He's um, shifty. You know, he had moved, I actually introduced him to his now wife. I love uh, her. A matchmaker, Beth yeah. and I, we saw it coming too. I was like, oh. I don't <laughs> You're uh, like, hey, buddy, I got a, yeah. I got a gal for you. Or did you yeah. go, hey, lady, I got, I got a guy with a good draw. Like, hey, guys, here you go. Uh, and it worked out. Yeah. Uh, so he was living. He actually managed Blood Feathers for a while. Because uh, when we left Prescott, he left Prescott. And he went back to New Orleans, finished getting a degree and do his stuff. And when he finished doing that, he fell in love with Christy. And they lived together in New Orleans. And he started managing Blood Feathers from afar because he was in it, too. He wanted, he like so wanted us to. You know, yeah, well, he had cultivated, uh, he'd watched this whole trajectory yeah. for you. He was invested. Which was, you know, a great gesture and it was genuine. And we continue to support each other in that way. And he moved back to his uh, family runs a cotton farm in Northwest Louisiana. <clears throat> he went back there. And in 2013, his younger brother, Ross, who is a spectacular, marvelous, beautiful person, died in an accident on the farm. <clears throat> very sudden and very rough and not pretty and, 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 and tragic and horrible. And that was in 2013, right after Newt's first uh, child was born. And I flew down there the day after the funeral just to, you know, I, it's a brutal, brutal thing. And um, we just visited and, and uh, I knew he had a, raw, a pretty heavy road of grief ahead of him. And he and his brother were working together. Both of them inherited uh, the duties of being the chief operator of a cotton farm. Uh, To their chagrin, 
to a degree, and also uh, in an interesting and exciting way in another degree, but they really had worked out a thing where Ross was a climber. He traveled the world uh, and would climb, you know, mountains in Nepal, and as well as other sorts of adventures. But they worked out a thing where Newt would run the farm uh, this 18 months, and then Ross would run the farm. So they'd figured out this thing, and they were getting into it, and this tragedy struck. And um, it was profound, and I knew that I knew that living at the house where they lived, because he lived on the farm exactly right, right around where this happened, I knew that was all going to be... I just wanted, I wanted to support him knowing that there was going to be a rough road ahead. Seven months after Ross died, um, a good friend of mine and wonderful line cook that worked for me named uh, Tony, he died on his birthday. He got hit by a car leaving work. And um, I was in the middle of finalizing this band, the Bloodfeathers band. We had made the, we kind of like made that record, which I knew was going to be the swan song. And I was not knowing what I needed to do, but I was still a chef. Now, now I'm like an executive chef of a restaurant where I'm like working, you know, that's my life. That's all my life. I had sort of like relinquished. And when he died, I really, you know, it's the closest I can tell you or uh, anybody that I felt like I had a breakdown and I felt like, felt like if you're looking at uh, an aerial view of the skyline of Paris and, Two thirds of it just went dark. Yeah, <laughs> it really felt like that happened, and um, because Tony was a beautiful person, and the way that it happened was terrible, and then he was from Pueblo City, and he wasn't a thousand percent uh, a citizen yet, and the city in Philadelphia did some fucked up stuff. Oh it, no! Not only was it tragic, there was this dynamic yeah. of like, of like ah, heathen jackalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I um, I gave my boss, uh, my friend Paul, uh, four months' notice. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no plan, but I had to get myself out of being an executive chef because my passion wasn't there. My brain could do it, uh, but if you don't, if you're not in love and obsessed with being a chef, don't do it. Like it's a when rough, I say, it's a rough existence to be in a yeah. kitchen every day with the pressure and the stress. If it's not something you want to be doing. Right. And we were, we were doing fine dining seven days a week, 11 a.m. to 1 a.m., uh, including brunches. And, you know, it, but, uh, it, you know, it, it was it, a lot then. I'm like, uh, even as somebody who's been a bartender and a server and all those things, I mean, those are long, crazy hours. You know, I'll never be a Marine. It's the closest you can get to armed services yeah. working in that environment. But I gave them four months notice and I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I had some vague notions that maybe I would go <clears throat> to the, back to the Southwest, maybe to California. But Beth and I were both sort of building our lives to jump off the ledge, wanting to have a decent plan together quicker than not. Uh, meaning I had a four-month notice. Maybe in two months we'll know what we're going to do. Right. Because uh, she had just finished finally school, so she was free too. Uh, so Newt called me one day out of the blue. And he said, you know, if you want to, I bought a house in Shreveport proper. The farm that he owns and works on is about 30 miles north of Shreveport. And he said, I'm not going to live in the house anymore. And nobody's going to move in. If you guys want to come down here for five months, six months, or a year and pay me a couple hundred bucks for rent and uh, utilities, you're welcome to come land here. 
and it'd be nice to have you around. And so we jumped at that, not knowing where it would take us or how long we'd be there, but we love Louisiana and I love South Louisiana. And I grew up on, you know, farms and round farms and cotton farms. So, and also I needed like I, the inertia of what was happening to me and loss of my band and loss of my friend and like a, real, a lot to grieve. Yeah. Space is grief, good. You know? So going down and slowing down saved my life. I mean, it really did. I mean, and for Beth too, we both sort of like, cause she was working tons of hours too. And we both had space to work. We both had, and that's during that time is when Ethan uh, just had, Ethan Hawke has been trying to convince me to act for a long time. And I think he was doing, I always took it as him being nice to me to encourage me to consider other creative outlets. Uh, just because he thought he was, I think you'd be good at it. Yeah. And he had, uh, in, in 2008, he put Beth and I in a movie just for like, uh, his protagonist saw us kissing and he wanted what these two people had. Right. And he he kind of asked me, he was like, what do you think about this? And I was like, not much. You know, I don't, I, I just wasn't in my purview. Yeah. Uh, so while I was down there, we would just talk about stuff and he'd say, you know, I, I would love for you to like, maybe I got this part in this other thing. And I just never, I did a table read with him one time for something. And I played music at a table read one time uh, that he had me with some pretty big names there, but I guess I wasn't receiving the message he was holding me to receive. <laughs> Well, and just to to your credit, if I may insert myself into your beautiful story, sometimes, sometimes it's just not the timing. Timing is not there yet. You know, sometimes, yeah. although someone could be pushing or guiding or hoping to drip those pearls of interest, time is a magical creature and it lands us where we need to be when we're supposed to be. And sometimes the light bulb goes off in a different entity time frame for one person as it does for another and when those ideas finally converge we get something spectacular which i would love to talk about yeah so that's you know that's the way that all that came to being was he basically twisted my arm <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you're gonna do this and you're gonna star in it and <laughs> was that overwhelming be- for you or you know, were you just kind of like grab the bull by the horns and fuck it i mean I'll be perfectly honest with you. When, when it was New Year's Eve when he came up with the idea, and it was New Year's morning when he pitched it properly, and he was serious. <laughs> he was clearer on New Year's morning. <laughs> he's not you know, he's kind of in that euphoric. I'm not hungover yet state. <laughs> that we feel feel pretty good. Um, but again, like it goes to speak to like you know, you can be a confident person and still be insecure. I still thought he was just prep talking me toward uh, creation, just just trying to help me. And and so when he pitched it on New Year's Day, he was like, you know, I, I, would you consider doing it? I want to do it. I'm inspired. I, I, you know, it's like something from beyond is making me do this, but would you do it? And I, I just said, yeah, of course I'll do it. Not believing it, would, it would ever happen. <laughs> and, actually, and what happened was he, you know, he, he he did some research to get more. You know, because I knew about Blaze Foley. So that's the movie we're talking about, yeah. and I I knew I knew who Blaze was. I had introduced him to Blaze, and it wasn't like Blaze was ever like. A, uh, I mean, we loved him, but we also loved John Prine. We also mm-hmm. loved uh, Charles Van Zandt. We also loved 
uh, Gareth Morlex, and we also loved, you know, all, all these characters that were from a, a different generation, but very close to ours, you know. Uh, but he got really deep into it. But the, the whole thing, this was in 2015, the whole, um, no, it was 2016. It was 2016, right? So the same year. He was, this was going to be a thing we did in 2018. So he's going to like, he's going to, he's going to dot all his I's and cross all his T's and have it ready. And then we'll start raising money. And by 2018, after he's done doing what was in front of him, right. we would turn toward this story. Which by the way, by, fair enough that you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do it. But I mean, when things yeah. are like two years down the road, you're like, we'll see when we get there. Right. I mean, call me when it's actually happening. So the film that he was working on that he had written, which is adaptation of Camino Real, Tennessee Williams play, mm-hmm. that was they had all systems ready to go with that thing, and they their their lead dropped out like weeks before they were hoping to get started, and so they had this production ready to go as far as money and energy, and one of the producers was ready to bet on anything Ethan was going to direct because he believed in him and he had worked with him on the film that Ethan did playing Chet Baker, Mm. which is marvelous in all aspects and especially Ethan's performance. So he had just done this biopic and now he's like, so, so all these things were lined up and lo and behold, between July of 2016 and September of 2016, he thought he was going to try to pivot to make this movie blaze. And by September we were scouting spaces, places for it. So now I had no, I had said yes. And that was really becoming real because I had a script and, you know, we wanted Alia Shawkat to play Stilbo Rosen. And she said, yes, the very first time Ethan talked to her, we wanted Chris Christopherson to play his dad. Chris said, yes. As soon as we started, uh, we wanted Josh Hamilton to play this character Z. Josh was 100% open and happened to be free from another canceled gig. Um, and there was all this other confluence of magic information as far as Blaze himself and the pull that he had as a human on planet Earth and wherever his molecules are now. <laughs> there was all this stuff at play, and it was really overwhelming the way it came together. And by December 3rd of 2016, we were just first day of shooting. So, you know, the people, people, the question people always ask me is, how did you get ready for that? Well, I think I got ready for that my whole life. Uh, Blaze was a lonely songwriter who suffered depression and breakup of a family and loved his friends with all his heart, but loved writing music more than anything. And so those ways I connected to Blaze. Blaze is from Arkansas, so am I. Blaze had family ties and life ties to Georgia. So did I, he had family ties and ties to, uh, Texas. So did I, he had ties to Louisiana. I mean, and did you people, know all of this before family. you researched the part? Like did you were a fan of him, but did you know how many parallels no. there were? No. And they still come. All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by gray dog guitars located at 141 North Cortez street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. A good friend of mine in Arkansas, uh, 
it was actually a friend of my father's, the lawyer. He saw the movie. He's like, yeah, I was really close with Blaze. He sent me a record that Blaze wrote, you know, something friendly to him. And uh, the day that Alia talks with Ethan and got cast, she went to lunch with uh, a, a woman who used to represent her when she was a young actress because Alia's been acting since she was a little kid, you know. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> She was like, yeah, yeah, I just got off, uh, I just Skyped with Ethan Hawke and I'm going to play this woman, Sybil Rosen, the story about Blaze Foley. And her friend got her phone, opened it up and said, I just got this today because this picture is me and Sybil Rosen when we're 14 on the beach in North Carolina. She had grown up with Sybil Rosen's family when they were young. And she had just that day got oh this gosh. like picture that like one of their sisters had found and been like, look at this picture. So there's so many stories. I won't you know, go too many into those, but there's so many stories. So you can feel it. Like yeah. you can feel that. Push. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I just, I trust Ethan and I, you know, I'm an artist and I've been in that. Uh, Alia was really helpful to me. Vincent D'Onofrio is uh, one of Ethan's best friends. And I've been friendly with Vince for about 10 years now, but we got really close because he did four little workshops with me in acting because I had a lot of misconceptions about what it was and what it wasn't. And he gave me some principles and some tools that, I could cut my way out of barbed wire with because I understand how to implement them. And I think my language, uh, understanding music helps me with that. But, you know, without Vincent, I don't know that I'd be able to do it. And without Ethan believing in me, I, don't, I certainly wouldn't be able to do it. Without him, uh, the grace of Alia Shawkat, who was my co-star, that didn't make me feel like a newcomer. Josh Hamilton didn't make me feel like a newcomer. And, you know, Charlie Sexton was our, our dream Towns Van Zant, and Charlie said yes and was available. I mean, Bob Dylan has Charlie on the road for the better part of 200 days every year, yeah. and that he was going to be available for this time was incredible. And I've known who Charlie is since I was young, and uh, Ethan got close with him when they made uh, Linkletter's Boyhood film. <clears throat> and you know, just just knowing that I could be a friend of Charlie's was exciting, but that I was going to work on something with him where he and I were going to, like, uh, make plans, you know, yeah. uh, decide on things. And At what and, point did and, you start getting excited? Um, because from, from what I'm hearing from this perspective, from sitting in this chair, yeah, 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 sure, like, I don't know, sure, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, will you do it? Yeah, yeah, sure, fine, I'll do it. And so do you. Uh, when we, when uh, Steve, who was the um, cinematographer, flew from Toronto, and he had shot, um, I can't remember that damn name of the Chet Baker movie, but it's, I can't remember what it's called. It's a great film. Um, he came down to Baton Rouge, and Beth and I drove to Baton Rouge, and I had been helping Ethan, Ethan, wrote the script. I wrote some language and some, some, I moved some things around, but we were like, now it was like close to its final form. And we were, we were, uh, location scouting. I mean, it was such a small production. Beth and I were location scouts. So Beth was the art director for the film. Amazing. So when we were doing that during the day and at night, I was like, Oh yeah, I've got, I've got like 26 monologues in this movie. <laughs> You know, I was like, so I got excited then just 
when I met Steve, who shot this, I could see he was an ace. I consider Ethan an ace at what he does. And I could see that these people were coming together with a vision and that there was purpose behind it. I got excited then because that's exciting. It's exciting to be part of a team that's working toward an artistic goal uh, with blood, guts, and well, beer. And in all honesty, it's everything you've been looking for for years at that kind yes, of, exactly. you know, um, exactly. intensity. And I do well under pressure and I like it. I, I, um, I invite it, you know, I, I'm, uh, it, it, it's scary. And I think that's good. It, it's a knocks you off balance. I think that's good. And, um, once we got started, I was stunned at how much joy it brought me and how much you know you're 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 chasing something when you shoot a movie and even in the minutes you're you're shooting and you're exploring and you're asking questions and you're doing all these stuff that part of it is so exhilarating and you don't know what's going to happen and um Ethan let Ellie and I sort of go off script uh sometimes and that bonding with somebody with an artistic language you didn't know you had um, it's super powerful. It's super powerful. And, <clears throat> you know, it was really encouraging. And then before I knew it, Vincent had cast me in another film and uh, I was getting asked to audition for certain things. And, you know, I made this Western with Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, I rode with him and Ethan one morning, like the seventh or eighth day of work. And it's like four in the morning. And uh, Vincent's is my size. I'm six five if I stand straight up in the air, I'm six four. But he's a big guy. And um we were driving, you know, in the morning and this piece of land, you have to go through a checkpoint before like about a three quarter of a mile drive before you get to set or base camp. And uh Vincent said, you know, the director and two actors coming in. And I shuddered, kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not ready to I don't know if I deserve that. Right. You know <laughs> and he turned around and looked at me and said, never, ever, ever, don't fucking do that. You, you're an actor, you understand that? You're an actor, and you're a good one, so shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that kind of candor, though. It's like, yeah, it's like kind of, you've had your moment of, of doubting, you've had your moment, like you've ridden that wave. It's time for that wave to be over now. Right, and that, you know, that was, uh, the question was about excitement. That moment was exciting because it's like I suddenly like gave myself permission be like you, you, you are this. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right on, right on. That's great. I have <laughs> two great. questions regarding this specific thing. The first time you saw maybe dailies or saw yourself on screen, how did it feel? I didn't watch you- one daily. I didn't watch. I, I, the first time I saw anything, it was getting close to a final cut before sound editing started. So I flew from Louisiana to uh, New York. To watch about a three-hour, forty-minute, super raw, uh, the, only the lav mic unmixed, so it's really flat and right. hard to hear. And um, you know, uh, I was more taken aback by the the quality of the sound being bad that, that I got worried. <laughs> You're like, but, I'm not even paying attention to my acting right now. Are y'all going to let yeah. it sound like this? <laughs> But you know, I, for me, like like you know, Dylan does this. Like, if if Dylan wants to play me this really great song that he's working on, 
he's not going to play me the like crappy version. Totally. Like, can, can you imagine the yeah. way this? Would Don't be worry, it's get getting it. better from here. I promise. I mean, right. you know, just imagine right. that it sounds better. <laughs> so what I had to do for about ten minutes is just trust that this process was par for the course in filmmaking. Because it's my first time in an editing suite, you know. Because we watched it like in an editing suite, and um, but I saw the story that we were trying to tell being told. I saw some of the moments that we were trying to capture being captured. I didn't watch any daily. I watched one. I went by, I went to Tent City where you can watch the stuff happening on a set once. And it was a scene between Sybil Rose and the real woman who was playing her own mother and Alia. It was a scene that didn't actually make it into the film, but they're talking over a fire. And I just wanted to, because I hadn't even seen, you know, cinematographer's genius. I hadn't seen his frame. I hadn't seen his light. I hadn't right. seen anything. And, uh, it was gorgeous. So when I watched the first cut of it, I was, I did have a lot of nerves. Like I had to know my lines again. <laughs> You're like, you know, what? like, like, you know, uh, you know, somebody would be talking and I knew that my, and I'd be like, I have no clue what I'm supposed to start saying. <laughs> so when I finally saw it sound edited and everything, you know, it was, it was exciting. I saw, I saw the person that I, I was, you know, because I was this like hybrid Blaze Foley. I was this different Blaze Foley, but I saw him. I didn't see myself, which was nice. Uh, I don't watch, I don't not watch dailies because I cringe. They, they fog, they, they give me a false impression or something. I, I, like, I peeked at it when I was doing the kid and I was like, I don't, I don't know why it's making me. Well, you probably just rather live the experience and let it speak for yeah, itself. I, Instead like, of looking back and then trying to dictate the experience. You know right. what I mean? Like, oh, I saw that I did this. Maybe I change it. It's like, let me just be in it and do it. Yeah. How and did so, it feel know, when Sundance responded as well as as they did? You know, it's it, again, it's just going to Sundance was so wonderful, regardless. Uh, and you could feel that people liked the movie when we first showed it, and it was exciting. And that was all. I didn't know that there was an award. I had no yeah. <laughs> clue. I, and I, and I, I thought we were going to like a you know, uh, the end of Sundance Symposium where everybody drinks and eats kebabs and you like meet all the other filmmakers, which in itself was great because yeah. I was a lot of people there I wanted to just visit with. And uh, then everybody there, you got to take your seat or doing this thing. And they gave me this award. And uh, my reaction to it was like, I couldn't believe it was happening. Like it, it almost felt like a prank, you know, I, I, I just didn't have like, <clears throat> I've told this story before, but I had to pee. So bad. So bad. I love the realism because it's true. It's like, let's talk yeah. about practical things here. And I was like, I was kind of agitated because I was like, how many more awards are there? You know, like, and it was exciting too because we were watching documentary crews that didn't have a big budget win awards. And some friends of ours that made this wonderful documentary about Syrian refugees won this award and they were sitting near us and we were so excited. And there had not been individual awards really yet. And I was just, you know, I promise you through the whole thing, I wasn't thinking I'm going to win anything or I'll even have a chance to win anything. I didn't, I just kind of, you know, I didn't think that, but I did have to pee and they were shooting it. They were shooting it and broadcasting on the internet and the camera guys were in our aisle. And I kept saying to Ethan, because Ethan was sitting and then there was the aisle. I was like, yo, I got to go pee. And he was like, just, just, just wait for a second. Cause he knew there was a possibility because he, he didn't, he didn't know I won, but he knew there was a possibility. But like I was in a red alarm situation, I was like, I'm gonna. <laughs> and so when this, when uh, uh, Michael Stobal, I can't even say his name right, uh, an actor that I admire, 
got up there to do this individual award. And I'm telling you, I was up on my seat just waiting for them to say who won because I knew what was going to happen was that the cameraman was going to rush in to follow that person on the stage. And I was just going to go behind him and go sprint to the bathroom. And it was absolutely surreal because he said my name. And I sort of, in the moment, I was like, I told Ethan, I was like, you go up there. <laughs> he was like, no, you have to go. And I was like, what? And it was really, everyone was looking at me. And it was magical. It really was. But I didn't, I didn't know how to compute it. And I, um, I had just been thinking right before that. I got up there to talk. Uh, isn't it interesting how documentary films or even uh, fiction films um, are these like memory banks for humanity? I mean, and what a lucky thing it is to have really good storytellers and filmmakers all in the same group. But I had just been thinking about that. Like, that's really fantastic. And, and uh, all the blues music that was captured in the early 20th century and the people who captured it. And I've just, I've just been thinking about that. So when they brought me up there, I just started like, you know, talking about that before realizing like, I, I'm going to pee. <laughs> so I, I barely remember what I said. I went off stage and they're very generous backstage. There's a bunch of actors that I knew. I mean, recognized, but didn't know, but they wanted to talk to me. And I, I told, uh, I think I told Nick Offerman, I was like, where's the bathroom? Because like, you got to go get pictures made. You got to go get pictures made. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to go do that right now. Cause I'm, I, and I ran to this little bathroom and peed and I went back and then they were waiting to take a picture of me. And I was like, well, this is fun. This is really fun. <laughs> this is great. And, uh, I think people really loved the movie and, uh, that, that whole week being in Sundance is so exciting because it's, Really, really, what you're doing is you're 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 um, you're having this like fellowship with all these people who have worked really, really fucking hard on something, and overjoyed they found it, found their way to Sundance. And regardless of what happens after that, you're just with all these people that have been on a similar mission than, to you. Yeah, it's a brotherhood feel, of sorts. I mean, it's yes. like a shared commonality experience. And there's so many film lovers and just people who love film. And, you know, it's it's super, super exciting. I think it was fantastic. I enjoyed the film very much myself. Um, so thank you for your contribution and for your role and for playing it so well and so honestly. Um, beautiful and heartbreaking story. I encourage everybody to go watch it. It's on Netflix right now. Um, yeah. Post-movie. How is your life? What? Where I mean, you strike me as somebody who's never got been privileged to sit down and chat with you. You strike me as one, a very humble, but two, a very authentic person to who you are, no matter what the circumstances around you seem to do. So post-movie, still in Louisiana, you're a big you know, star on the rise right now, but you strike me as somebody who's still very much like, I'm just happy to be in my home and write some new tunes, and, and Beth and I are doing well, and um, like, how has your your own style lifestyle how is your own perception and your the lenses you're looking through have they changed well sure yeah they changed a lot i mean i i, I the the language you learn for acting and making a movie and uh, going on that mission and, and feeling like you accomplished it changes you it makes you gives you some perspectives you didn't have um, something that's new in my life is that I have a manager who sends me scripts and tells me that, you know, 
filmmakers or actors or people that I admire and know would like to me to present a self tape or do an audition online. All that's new to me um, and exciting. Yeah, uh, I've auditioned for some films that I haven't gotten. I've gotten some other parts that are exciting, and I, I worked on The Good Lord Bird, which is on Showtime, which is about John Brown, the abolitionist, and worked with filmmakers and actors in that uh, world. Some from stage, some from other stuff that I admire, and you know. Working on a film, you just have so much admiration for how much work goes into it. And now that I know the functionality of that, my respect for all pieces are way up. So what's new to me is I get scripts sent to me and Ethan and I talk about stuff that he's writing and working on. And I've begun, I've got a couple of stories I've written in my life, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish a screenplay as an exercise to maybe lead to writing something that I really want to. Um, I find the language of screenwriting really interesting. Uh, I like the parameters and I like the construction of a script uh, in regards to playing with time and setups, et cetera. Uh, with music, it's um, reminded me that there's so much more to learn and be knowing. And um, I love the feeling like I was describing of, uh, of, uh, a mission gone well making a film. And now I'm hungry for that. Uh, I don't have to have a big part in something, uh, but to play in something with somebody that I love and know is aiming at something particular that they're hoping to get. I like, I'm a good teammate and I like to be called upon to try to tell that line. Um, I have some stuff that's in the works right now. I have uh, a thing I can't even talk about that's exciting. Um, that if it happens, will be a dream come true that I didn't ever know I had. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> I'll get to do something in a film capacity that I never thought I would get to do. Um, so, knowing all those exciting things, I'm working very hard to push away expectations because I've suffered the bad end of having expectations as a musician. Um, I've given up on expectations on like, you know, I got a new record coming out. Um, you know, my record charted on the uh, Americana chart and people were so excited about it. And that stuff doesn't mean it. It really doesn't mean anything to me anymore because the, it's attached to some like, you made it as far as 13 on the chart. Sorry, you didn't make it to 12. Right. You know, who cares? Who cares? If I can make another one, I'll get to do it. If I can make another one, that's what I want to do. So um, I also have this crazy admiration for my friend Ethan because he invited me into a world that he trusted I would uh, flourish in. And he continues to work as hard as he did when I first met him. That is, he's directing, he's trying things new all the time as are some of the other uh, actors that I've met who before I knew them were, um, they were, they had made it. They were, they made it somewhere. Right. But you get to know some of these people is that's not it. That's not what we're, and that's, you know, and then and getting into that stream of understanding is, you know, leads you to bigger purviews about, uh, you know, where we're going and where we've been. Yeah. Uh, people, people are, very uh, interested to know what happens after death. I'm just as interested to have them 
to know what happened before. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think th- that's part of the reason why I asked that question, but I think it's so phenomenal to be looking at your life from a different tone of, of experience versus expectation, like you said. And I was curious to know that when you do this quick, and, and I say quick in relative time, this quick upward motion from, you know, where you seemingly thought you were or what you seemingly thought you would do or what you seemingly thought would happen to a whole different uncalculated perspective. I mean, in that regard, it gives you so much perspective, you know, (laughs) which is incredible. Yeah. Which is incredible. Ben, I hope, my hope now is that at some point you and your lovely Beth will come back and visit Prescott Maybe we'll be able to twist your arm into giving us a show. And, Absolutely. Uh, I am so honored that you were willing to come on the podcast today. I really appreciate your your time. I really appreciate your authenticity, your willingness to share your journey and your truth and your experience thus far. May I ask you one or two questions I ask everybody? Yes, go ahead. Okay. I always give you the opportunity to say no, just Absolutely. in case you're like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> um, uh, let's hear them. Let's, let's hear them. At this point, having this remarkable life experience that you've had so far, is there something you would tell your younger self? Uh, yes, and here's a little uh, here's a little insight into how uh, strange I am. <laughs> I, I used to listen for myself from now then, mm. and I listen for myself then now. That is, I would tell myself what I think I've been telling myself the whole time, which is be open and don't stop. Uh, be open because you don't know what's going to happen, whether it be great, wonderful news or the worst news. And don't stop because if you do stop, then uh, you're missing the purpose. Uh, and that's what I would say to myself then. I love it. It's very poignant and also important, I think. I, I think we all, you know, it, Again, comes with all the cliches. Don't stop moving. That's when, you know, when your butt gets too comfy in that chair. Yeah. Ain't nothing going to happen sitting in that chair. You know? <laughs> um, what would you say has been a career high, but also a career low for you? Career, well, you know, career is a funny word because I consider career to be everything. Um, so career high for me was um, falling in love with Beth Lawson and uh, she moved to France before we uh, got together proper, and I flew there to be with to 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 basically say we've been friends for a while now, but I'm mightily in love with you. Oh my God! What a great big gesture! You've got a rom com coming out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> so the career high is still happening, you know. Uh, that she's an artist. She pushes me. She's my lover. She makes me joyous. She's my friend. We cook for each other. We make each other laugh. And, uh, you know, through all the things that are coming and going in this life, they, they wouldn't be half as quarter wonderful without that. Um, a career low, um, you know, the first Blood Brothers record that I was explaining, like, uh, you know, we'd, we'd basically been told we were going to have, like, a six-figure advance to kind of live on. And we had begun to plan <laughs> plan that you know <laughs> meaning we had both given notice that we were going to like leave our jobs and yeah. like go. 
and 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 but but that the first record kind of came out with a fizzle um and i at the time had built this uh very very tall um expectation and when it wasn't met it was catastrophic for my confidence and you know my attitude toward record labels and the, the whole music business which i knew was full of jackals but that period right before i moved to arizona kind of when i moved to arizona and drew didn't come out um as much as it was wonderful to get out there i had really believed in our first record like so much so that i, I just i just knew it was going to take flight and that was really hard that it didn't but that lesson you know led to like don't have expectations and if nobody's listening, you know, play for the photons in the air because they want to hear it. So that period of time, which while it being really low, ended with me getting double pneumonia after making this sort of like resurrection record. So I sort of put it all kind of in that period. But, you know, even that period, I was in Prescott, Arizona, and that was really beautiful to be there. Wow. Well, I think that's just highlighting even more that when we do hit these like high high peaks of success those low valleys shape us a lot you know and it's I, please i didn't mean to cut you off you look like no, you were say something. I, I was just agreeing like the whole the whole world's in a, in a rut right now you know yeah uh, we've got a lot of there's a lot of phoenixes poised to f- flash up from ashes all over the world right now and i hope just like what you were saying i hope these low valleys are going to instruct a better community of people. Well, a better view at the top on the other end, for sure. Surely. Hopefully we're all, we're all climbing that mountain. And when we get to the top, the view is just prettier than the one from the last mountaintop, you know, (laughs) Um, where should we be putting everybody to find you, to hear you, to follow you, to be excited for you, to, to see what's coming um, I'm on your, I'm on your Instagrammer has been Dickie music. And, um, I had a website that I think kind of got bloated and big and, and too much went into it at once maybe, but I, I, I just kind of let it fall to the side. Self-promotion and social media is, I'm a bit allergic to it and I get, I get tisked for it by my manager sometimes, but, um, my music is available on iTunes and any sort of streaming service. Uh, I think we're sold out of the physical copies of all the stuff that I put out in the last two years. Yeah, you are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this big reevaluation of the music business. I'm sure Dylan knows all about it too. Um, certainly the quarantine has killed it worse than it was already killed, but uh, it's not in good shape. So, I'm making a lot of music in my studio. I've got five to six albums worth of material, but my first solo records are on iTunes. The Blood Feathers records are on iTunes. I was in a band called Amen Booze Rooster. <laughs> That's on iTunes. Shake Ray Turbine is on iTunes. Um, I'm in the first episode of The Good Lord Bird that was on Showtime, which if regardless of whether or not you see my face in it, uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic show about the spark that ignited the Civil War and the people that wanted slavery to be done with. Um, And, 
the kid is a good time if you want to see a western and you want to see Chris Pratt be a bad guy. Uh, and Ethan Hawke be Pat Garrett and Dane DeHaan be Billy the Kid and I'm Ben there. Dickey be Jim East. I'm there. Uh, yeah, so the stuff I'm working on film-wise right now is I can't even talk about it. I know, I love that. I love the secrecy. It actually makes me very happy. I'm like, oh, he revealed nothing but also revealed exciting things. This is so exciting. <laughs> yeah. My hope is that whatever I have to possibly have be exciting doesn't get cut off from this terrible pandemic we're having. Yeah. Well, I hope that for you too. I'm, we're just going to put it out there that it's it's going to be on the journey it's supposed to be on. So That's exactly right. There we go. Sir, I am so happy to have met you and spent time with you. Absolutely. I enjoyed spending time and visiting with you. Please come visit us. Bring your beautiful lady. I will. I have a great, I have a great plan. It's just got to be after vaccinations. Okay. Deal. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Take take care. And Dylan, I love you. Be well. <laughs> he's he's giving you a, a wave in, from the booth. So um, he's right back Thank at you. Thank you. You're, you're good at what you're doing. Man. Good yeah. luck. At all. all right. You have a wonderful day. Thank you again for being our guest. Thanks so excited to have had you on. Have a good one. Good deal. Peace. Okay, everyone. Today's episode was recorded at and brought to you by Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Raven Sound Studio is a professionally equipped audio production facility offering recording, mixing, and mastering services throughout northern Arizona and surrounding areas. Whether you are looking to cut a demo, record your next single, or have a full album produced, Raven Sound Studio has the tools and skills you need to get the job done. For more information, head to www.ravensoundstudio.com to book a session or schedule a tour. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. To get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming, your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.